0: We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service, before the sermon, three passages were read from the Bible. Psalm 104, verses 24 through 35, John chapter 15, verse 26, through chapter 16, verse 15, and Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, Please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Here's an email that my mother sent me on my birthday this year. Happy birthday, Aubrey! As I was sitting here at 4:25 a.m., I happened to recall the day of your birth. It went something like this: I had a morning doctor's appointment around 10 o'clock. Alice kept D. That's my brother. And Monica went to kindergarten. The doctor told me the usual, you won't have the baby this week. Tell your husband to buy you some chocolate Easter candy. I'd only gained 11 pounds and he thought I should gain a little more. Sure enough, as with Monica and Dee, the doctor was wrong. Shortly after getting home, I started having those unmistakable birthing pains. I called Wayne and the doctor and I took a shower and washed my hair, and we headed for Baptist Hospital. The doctor, whom I had never seen, although he was in my doctor's group, admitted me. He told your dad that it wouldn't be anytime soon and to go on home and do whatever he needed to do. The doctor went back across the street to his office, and before he could get back to the hospital, you began your entry into the world. You were partially born in the hallway while the nurses were frantically sailing us to the delivery room. There was a lot of commotion and hurry when we did get to the delivery. The rest is history. After the fact, one of the nurses said, did anyone notice what time he was born? And I said, it was 425. The clock was right in my view. As with D, your dad was somewhere between our house and the hospital, probably on the Mississippi River Bridge. I think I still haven't forgiven him for the first time, much less the second time, although now I can write this email and laugh about it. Anyway, have a wonderful day. It can never be as exciting as April 25th, 1973. Love you very much, Mom. Now, our passage tonight, out of Acts, it's Luke telling us about the church's birth. And and just like in the email from my mother, this passage from Luke, it kind of really assumes you're a part of the family. Just like the email from my mom, you guys heard one thing, but when I read that and I heard it, I knew a whole lot more than you know. And in a lot of those phrases, I heard generations of tradition. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are things that are being said in that email from my mother that you have no idea. Why? Because I'm a speaker, right? And because I have this huge family tradition behind me. And because I've sat at, at the table around Christmas and I've heard stories. And, and, and I'm a part of this whole culture of, of what it means to be in my family. So when my mom writes a letter, she can have these phrases that are kind of like a suitcase. She can pack a whole lot of tradition in one little phrase, and she doesn't have to unpack it and spell it all out for me. That That's what insider knowledge is. It's a suitcase. It's, it's one phrase that indicates a whole wardrobe full of ideas. In Luke's birth announcement of the church, it's written with a whole world of presuppositions and backstory and generations of tradition and insider knowledge. Like Robert said, today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day when the church celebrates her birthday. We celebrate that day 2,000 years ago when the church was born, when the Holy Spirit did some weird kind of Steven Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of stuff, and he blew this ragtag group of very unimpressive followers of Jesus out into the streets and into the cities, and into the cultures of this world. So Luke chapter 2 is the insider account of the day the church was born. And in order to understand what Luke is saying, well, it'd be the same thing for you to really understand what my mother was saying in the email. We've got to pick up the backstory, story. And, and to do that, we need to go on a whirlwind tour of the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. It covers events that occurred about 1,500 years before all of the wind and the fire of Pentecost. In fact, Luke, who, who wrote the part of the story That that Gates read, and John, that wrote the part of the story that Sandy read, both of them had immersed themselves in in the Jewish scriptures. And they were especially keen on the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. So let's jump into Exodus. One day, Moses is a shepherd, and he's in the wilderness around the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai, and he comes up to this bush. And this bush is on fire, but it's kind of weird. It's not like burning up. And so he gets closer to try and figure out exactly what's going on here. And he quickly discovers that he's in the presence of God. That somehow, in some weird way, remember we talked about this last week, that heaven and earth are overlapping, interlocking dimensions of the same reality, that somehow in that bush with that fire, heaven and earth were overlapping and interlocking and the veil that separates heaven and earth was split apart and somehow God was manifest in the fire of that bush. So God tells Moses to get the people of Israel, they're in Egypt, they're slaves, and to bring them back to that mountain to worship him. So... Moses goes and gets the people of Israel. He rescues them from Egypt. You can see this in the Disney movie, Prince of Egypt, tells all about it. He rescues them, and he brings them back to the base of the mountain, and they encamp around the base of the mountain. And while they're encamped around the mountain, God descends upon the mountain in the form of a thick cloud, thunder, lightning, and fire. And he gives Moses ten commandments. And then after he gives him Ten Commandments, he tells him to build a very special and very particular tent. And they call it the tabernacle. And he tells him, Moses, you build this tent because when you do, in a a unique way, I'm going to descend from this mountain to that tabernacle. And then as you go on your journey to the land that I'm promising to give you, I will dwell among you. However, before the people build the tabernacle, there's a disaster. The Israelites get all of their jewelry, their gold rings and their earrings and their necklaces and their nose rings and whatever kind of freaky gold stuff they had, and they boil all that gold and they make a cow out of it, a baby calf, And then they bow down and worship that calf as an idol. They betray God. They trade him in for something they can see and feel. And taste and touch. Now in response, God tells Moses, My presence will not go with you into the promised land. And Moses intercedes. And in a very famous passage of scripture that's very important for what's going on in Acts chapter 2, Moses says this to God. If your presence will not go with me." Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? Is it not when you go with us that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? So God relents, the people repent, they build the tabernacle. And the book of Exodus concludes with the glory of God descending into this tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, this is how it goes. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled it. And Moses was not able to enter the tent because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled it. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journey. So Israel sets out and we've got lots of other parts of the Old Testament that tell us the story and they head toward the land in a very circuitous route, 40 years worth of wandering to this land that God had promised them. Now fast forward about 500 years. Israel's in the promised land and they built the temple. And they're dedicating the temple to God when all of a sudden, what happens, Glenn? The glory of God. Same thing, right? God descends on the mountain. God descends to the tabernacle. God descends to the temple. And it fills the temple, and it's so thick. Listen to how First King describes it. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the temple so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, from here on out, throughout the Old Testament, and in in the history of Israel, the temple is regularly described as the place God chose to dwell. Now, of course, the Israelites knew that the God who fills heaven and earth The God who created everything could not be contained in a building. They know that, but because God chose to have his presence so associated with and so concentrated here at the temple, the temple becomes the primary symbol of God's presence among his people. Then disaster strikes again. The people of Israel keep going back to their... Favorite watering hole. They keep going back to idol worship. They keep betraying God again and again and again. And so 400 years later, enough's enough. And God allows Jerusalem to fall to her enemy. And the temple is destroyed. And in one of the most painful and emotionally devastating moments in world history, one of israel's prophets has a vision of the glory of god in the form of smoke and fire and wind leaving the temple departing from israel and she loses her identity she loses what it means to be israel she loses the presence of God. For several hundred years, Israel's preachers, her prophets, gave a promise. They promised that God, his presence, would return to Israel. Now, one of the most famous promises is Ezekiel 37. It says, My dwelling shall be with you again, I will be your God. And you will be my people again. Now, one of the most important examples of this is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says this in chapter 2. It's, it's a prophecy, a promise to the people of Israel. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills And all nations shall flow to her. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his path. Now that's the backstory. Now we're ready to understand what's going on when Luke and John tell us about the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see, many, many first century Jews, Jews at the time that John wrote his gospel and Luke tells the story of the day of Pentecost, many Jews during that time were regularly worshiping in the rebuilt temple, but they were famously lamenting the fact that God had not returned. It was the great gulf at the center of Judaism, the temple was more a place of memory and imagination than it was a vivid reality of God's thick presence. Now, this is the context in which Luke and John are writing. Take Luke, for example. When he writes about those events at Pentecost that Gates read to us, he tells the story, right? It's like my mother telling the story of my birth. She could have given a thousand other details, She could have told the same story, the same truth, the same historical event. She could have told it from many different perspectives. But she told it from the perspective of mom. When Luke tells the story of what actually happened on that day, he tells it in a particular way to awaken all of those old stories of God filling the temple, filling the tabernacle with his glorious presence the wind from heaven filling the house, the tongues of fire. Luke is telling us this event, this day of Pentecost, this is the glory of the Lord coming back to fill the temple. He's making a very particular point. He's telling us the pillar of cloud and the fire have returned to lead the people Through the wilderness. This is the restoration that all of Israel has been leaning forward and waiting for. And this is critical for us to understand what or who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit, in other words, is the personal presence of God Himself returning to His people. Remember the passage from Isaiah I read out of Isaiah chapter 2, the promise that on the day when the presence of God returns to his temple, the nations will flock to Jerusalem, to Zion, to hear the word of the Lord. When God refills the temple with his presence, then God's power and God's grace would reach out and summon people from every nation under heaven. Luke says, yes, yes. That's precisely what happened. That's what Gates read us in verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and the list goes on and on and on. The outpouring of the spirit of God at Pentecost meant that God had fulfilled his promise to dwell once again personally among his people. But His dwelling is in a radically new way. It's no longer in a building of brick and mortar. It's no longer isolated to a piece of geography in the Middle East. No longer, when we talk about God's temple, are we talking about a singular physical building. Israel's temple was just a signpost pointing into a foggy future. It was was a signpost pointing into the distance to something greater, to God's desire to dwell among his people, to live in the hearts and the lives of individuals. God's intention all along was to overflow the banks of the nation of Israel into the whole world, to bless all of the nations, In other words, God's Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God himself returning to his people, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the world. In Acts chapter 2, the moment that God's Spirit returns to his people They're blown out of the room. I mean, quite literally, it's amazing. This wind and fire comes in, and then they explode out of the room like horses at the Kentucky Derby. They jump out of the room, and the next thing you know, they're in the streets, they're in the cities, they're in all over. They're declaring Jesus Christ, not merely the God of Israel, but the universal Lord and the universal creator. And then there's our passage in John. Sandy read to me. John chapter 15, starting in verse 26, when the helper comes, that's Jesus talking about when the day of Pentecost occurs and the Holy Spirit comes. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will be my witnesses. You see, the church was born with a mission the world. In the book of Acts, it starts out in the city of Jerusalem. That's page one of the book of Acts. But the very last page of the book of Acts is Paul sitting in Rome. And the book of Acts is about this incredible geographic expansion of Christianity, exploding from a particularly Jewish thing into a worldwide phenomenon. There's this programmatic statement in the beginning of the book where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it ends up being an outline for the book. As you read through Acts, you see the gospel first in Jerusalem and then reaching out to its neighbor's and then reaching out farther and farther and farther until it finally gets to the ends of the earth, which is the biblical way of referring to the whole inhabited world. And since that day, Christianity has grown. I mean, think about how amazing this is. That was a few unimpressive people in a backwater colony of the Roman Empire And here we are, thousands of miles away, several cultures removed, and Christianity has grown into the largest religion in the world. That's unbelievable. Philip Jenkins is the distinguished professor of history and religious studies at Penn State. He says there are 2 billion Christians in the world today. That's one out of every three living human beings. And Christianity is growing at a staggering rate. In Africa alone, in the year 1900, there were 10 million Christians. A century later, in the year 2000, there were 360 million Christians. From 10% of the population to 46% of the population. That is the single largest quantitative religious change in the history of the world. It's played out in front of our eyes. Now, we live in the West where Christianity is stagnant. And too often, with our American arrogance, we extrapolate from our little bitty setting to the whole. And we assume that whatever's going on here with Christianity must be the state of Christianity around. For all sorts of reasons, the church in the south and in the east is invisible to us. And it's a shame. Because when you look at Christianity as a planetary phenomenon and not merely a western phenomenon, it is impossible to not be astounded This splinter development within first century Judaism exploded onto the scene in the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and then spread around the planet until it represents one out of every three people in the world today. Pentecost. That's what happens when God's Spirit returned to His people. God's empowering presence among his followers, giving them an energy and a strength to take the news that Jesus alone is the creator and the Lord into all of the world. Pentecost, the creation of a people as the vehicle of God's mission into the world. Now, this is the story that our church, all things new, is plunged into. Right here over the mountain, God is birthing a new church. That's what God's Spirit does. It's right there in the scripture that Sarah Coleman and Spencer led us in at the beginning of tonight, Psalm 104, verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground That's what God's spirit does. It creates, it births, it brings into life. And here, God's spirit is creating a new church. Why? Why a new church in Birmingham where there's a whole bunch of churches? Well, because that's what God's spirit does. You try to hold the spirit back, it's like trying to hold the horses at the Kentucky Derby back. You're not gonna do that. But for what reason? The same reason as always. Why is God starting a new church in Birmingham? For the sake of the world. We are being birthed for that same mission that blew Peter out of the upper room into the teeth of the very people whom he had run from just a few days earlier. We are being birthed so that the whole creation will be reconciled to God through Christ by the cross. How do we do this? By the Holy Spirit. The empowering, strange, surprising, uncomfortable presence of God. We share with other people who God truly is. We announce that God is Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, crucified, risen, ascended, and returning. And tonight, and over the past several weeks, we've seen that the message of the church is God's mission to make all things new. And if that's true, It calls us away from asking, how does God fit into my life? I mean, if what I've just said is true, it calls us out of fitting God into our lives. And instead, it calls us to seriously ask, where does my life fit into the great story of God's mission of making all things new? And if that's true, then the only logical starting place is for every one of us in this room to take seriously questions like this. What does my job have to do with God's mission to make all things new? What does my family life have to do with God's mission? What does business have to do with God's mission? What does farming have? have to do with God's mission? What do my resources have to do with God's mission? And on and on. And so as our church follows God on his mission to reconcile his creation to himself, as we take these sorts of questions seriously, there's going to be joy and there's going to be suffering. And that passage in John, it was right There, Jesus is clear, many will accept our message and many will mock it and laugh at us and reject us and harm us. And like in the book of Acts, they will accuse us of being drunk or confused or arrogant or dumb or naive or old-fashioned or triumphalistic or you pick the name. But in the midst of it all, when our church commits itself to join God on his mission, then we will experience the reality of God's presence. The personal, powerful presence of God himself. And it will transform us. It will transform. The Holy Spirit inside of us will do things and and transform us as individuals and as a group into effective, relevant witnesses. And as we open ourselves up to God's presence in our midst, we surrender our pride and our own agendas and we join God on His mission we might be accused of being drunk too. Because we'll discover that heaven and earth are indeed overlapping and interlocking. And God's Spirit is indeed present to lead us and to guide us and to speak to us personally. And like we heard in Scripture, to give us dreams and visions. God's Spirit will empower us to live radical lives in our streets, in our cities, and our cultures, to the ends of the earth. That's the story of our birth. Let's pray.